Our scripture reading today comes from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 1, and then continuing with verses 4 through 7. But first, let us pray. God of grace and God of glory, on your people pour out the power to hear your word and the humility to be changed by it. Grant us wisdom and grant us courage for the facing of this hour and every hour. Amen. I'm curious if you have ever heard of Carl Ritter von Hege. I want to tell you something of his story, but first a little bit of background. In between Italy and Austria, there's a section in the Alps called the Semmering, and it is an impossibly steep and incredibly high section of the mountains. In 1842, von Hege, an engineer, he began imagining that it might be possible one day for a railway to span that entire distance and directly connect Venice and Vienna. Well, it took 14 tunnels, 16 viaducts, 20,000 workers, and 12 years before that railway was complete. When it was completed, it was more than five times steeper than any other. It was an incredible dream and an even more incredible accomplishment, so much so that in 1998, the Semmering Railway was named a World Heritage Site. It was recognized for the advanced technology utilized in its creation, and it was recognized for making this vastly beautiful, previously uncharted area accessible to humanity. It offered us an entirely new cultural landscape. It is considered, even to this day, a marvel of the modern world. But here is perhaps the most marvelous part of this story. At the time that von Hege conceived of this idea, and at the time of the excavation of the area, and even at the time when the tracks were being constructed, there was no train in existence that could make the trip. One of the most ambitious projects in railway history was undertaken with absolutely no evidence there could ever be a train that would come along able to make the trip. Now what I'm about to say is not a fact simply something I like to imagine. I do like to imagine that if you traced Von Hege's family tree all the way back, branch by branch, maybe even forest by forest, you would eventually find the prophet Jeremiah. Now, anytime we talk about prophets, there's an important clarification to be made. Now, we tend to assume, and sometimes we've even been taught, that prophets have a gift, and that gift is the ability to see into the future. That's not quite right. Prophets do have a gift, but the gift they've been given is not to see the future. Their gift is to see the present. Now, I know that must sound silly because who can't see the present in front of them, but to see what is really and truly and fully going on in the present moment, 
Well, that is far more difficult than we tend to imagine. Prophets were able to see the present differently. And because they saw the present differently, they could anticipate a different future, too. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet, but a reluctant one. I can't blame him. Real prophets are never very popular. And he didn't go out seeking the job. The job came to him. He tried to exchange it for one he liked better. God was not interested in negotiating. And so left with no other choice, he reached for an excuse. I'm just a kid, Jeremiah says to God. I can't possibly do what you have in mind. And without missing a beat, God informs Jeremiah that not only is that a lousy excuse, it is an offense to the one who created him. In his defense, though, I imagine most of us would have been reluctant as well. You see, Jeremiah lived and prophesied during one of the worst times in Israel's biblical history. A foreign enemy nation, Babylon was its name and Nebuchadnezzar was its king. A foreign enemy came through with its army and it burned down the temple. They destroyed the holy house of God. They left Jerusalem in ruins and they deported the people. They took them away from their homes and they forced them into exile. And Jeremiah is the one tasked with interpreting to them everything that is happening. So he uses brutal words to do that. He uses brutal words for about 29 solid chapters. Jeremiah is not a feel-good book. It is hard to read because it was written during a hard time. And so in response to the difficult and very serious situation that Jeremiah is trying to explain, others rush in with platitudes and cliches. Tired of all of his doom and gloom, they fall all over themselves, reassuring everyone that everything is fine. They are going to be just fine any day now. Just calm down. Hananiah was one of those folks. We could call him a false prophet because he delivers false information. He shows up a few chapters before our reading today, and he says to people who are hurting and homesick, he says to people who are living a life so far removed from what they had known and hoped and imagined for themselves, he says, don't worry, everything bad is behind you. Everything good is on its way any day now, so chin up. can't help but think that if he were talking to the exiled today, he might say, don't worry. Everything bad is behind us. It's time to open everything. There are no masks needed. It's nowhere near as bad as they want you to think it is. Come on. But Jeremiah, the one appointed by God, he will have Absolutely none of that. No, he says, it's not like that at all. Now that is not a word 
we expect to hear from the Bible very often. No, the good news you want, it is not coming. Not yet. Hananiah is full of lies. It may seem wrong to squash good news like Jeremiah does, but honestly, I am immensely grateful for his holy no. Because there are times when it is the ugly and horrible truth. There are times when the ground shakes underneath us and our knees buckle. There are times when things turn out to be worse than we imagined. Kate Bowler is a professor of early Christian history at Duke Divinity School. She's written a phenomenal book titled Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, and I recommend it to everybody. In a recent podcast of hers, she says, I used to be living my very best life. I'm a Duke professor, wine and cheese enthusiast, wife and mother. And then I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. That was four years ago and I'm still here, she says, and now I get it. Life is a chronic condition. The self-help industry and the wellness industry, they will try and tell you that you can always fix anything about your life. Believe with your whole heart and God will provide. Keep this attitude and the money is yours. But I'm here, she says. I'm here to look into your gorgeous eyes and tell you, honey, some things can be fixed, but other things can't. I'm here to tell you, she says, there is no cure for being human. Her words are describing to our more modern ears what it means to be in exile. Because sometimes exile is a statement of geography, but other times it is a condition of the soul. It's whenever we're thrust into an unfamiliar and uncomfortable place. It's whenever the darkness feels too deep and the unknowns loom too large. It's when you would give anything, absolutely anything, for just a little peace of mind. And it was to people enduring that type of situation, the type of situation we try hard to avoid and try even harder to escape. But it was to people in the midst of exactly that kind of situation that Jeremiah says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat from them, Grow a family, create a community, care about the city all around you, even though it's not the home you remember. In other words, he says, look, we're going to be at this for a while. We are in this for the long haul. So you might as well settle in. Or in other words, still, keep going. Do the best you can. Life will still emerge, even if it comes from the strangest and least likely of places. And then, as if to prove his point, 
Whether it's to prove his point to others or to himself, I'm not sure. But just a few chapters later, Jeremiah buys a field. In the middle of being exiled far from home, the man buys an enormous swath of land. And then he says, I tell you, the Lord our God says this, that houses and fields and vineyards shall appear again in this land. Houses, gardens, fields, families, vineyards, railways. You know what all of those have in common? They are long-term commitments. They are seriously long-term commitments. Now I have to tell you that gardeners, gardeners are some of the most hopeful people I know. You plant a seed in the dirt and you take care of it day after day. And for quite some time, you see absolutely no evidence whatsoever that anything is happening. Gardening is not for people who like instant gratification. Gardening is for people like Jeremiah and Von Haga and Kate Bowler, too. And gardening was also for my friend Barbara. Barbara was a member at my first church. She had lived a good long life that was nearing its end. And anytime I went to visit her, she would ask me to wheel her out into her garden. And one fall, she worked herself exhausted nearly every day planting bulbs. We both knew this was almost certainly her last season of life. And I asked her, I said, Barbara, what is it like to work so hard and plant all of these bulbs when it's possible you won't get to see them bloom? She patted my hand and she said, honey, you are right. I won't see a single one of these bulbs bloom, but someone else is going to move into this apartment and they are going to love their new garden. Build houses and plant gardens. It's commencement season right now. Like so many other things, commencement addresses look different these days. But we do have many graduates ourselves among us. We will find ways to offer them our congratulations. But for now, here are these words that Stephen Colbert spoke at a graduation exercise at Knox College. It was a while ago now, but I believe they still ring true. With a lifetime's worth of wisdom to disperse in 15 minutes or less, Colbert chose these words. Say yes as often as you can. When I was starting out in Chicago doing improv theater with Second City, there was really only one rule I was taught. Say yes. The rule, he said, is called yes and. In this case, he said yes and is a verb. Yes anding means that when you go on stage to improvise without a script, you have no idea what's going to happen and you might be doing it with someone you've never met before. So to build a scene, first you have to accept. 
To build anything on stage, you have to accept whatever the other improviser gives you. They say you're both doctors, you're both doctors. And then you add to that. We're doctors and we're trapped in an ice cave. That's the and part. And hopefully they will yes and you back. He looked out over the graduates and he said, you are about to start the greatest improvisation of all. There is no script. You have no idea what is going to happen. And it will usually involve people in places you have never seen before. You are not in control. So say yes. Say yes and. If I understand it, that is Jeremiah's word to the exiles and to us, to yes and it. Now don't miss this. The most profound thing about yes and, at least as I see it, is that it never takes away from any of the story that came before. Yes, anding our lives never tries to erase or diminish the painful parts that need and deserve to be acknowledged. What it does is guarantee that those painful parts never get the last word. Yes, our beloved friend and pastor died. And. Yes, we are stuck. We are stuck at home. We are stuck apart from one another. We are stuck in the midst of a pandemic. We are stuck without rice. We are hopefully not stuck without toilet paper. We are stuck like we have never been stuck before. And. Yes, and. Buy a field. Yes, and plant a garden. Because if gardeners are some of the most hopeful people I know, gardens are some of the most hopeful places. I think Jeremiah felt the same way because surely he would have remembered another garden. At the very beginning of scripture in Genesis, when God shows us God's most remarkable and persistent skill, creation. It was in the Garden of Eden that life as we know it came into being. It was there that God formed us out of the dust and breathed air into our lungs. It was there that God first loved us and named us. It was there that God fashioned every animal of the field and every bird of the sky. It was in the garden that God blessed all of creation. And while, while this one wouldn't have been Jeremiah's to tell, it is ours. It was in another garden that life emerged again. It was in the garden that hope sparked in the face of death on Easter morning. It was in the garden that resurrection became real. It was in the garden that the resurrected Christ was first mistaken to be, of course, the gardener. Because life always comes to us in the garden. Gardens remind us that while there is no cure for being human, 
There is still an endless amount of beauty and meaning and truth and hope to be found. And we can join with one another in the searching. We can be human together. And this weekend, we can be gardeners together too and take a small step toward planting beauty and meaning and truth and hope in our own homes, in our own gardens, in our own community, in our own lives, with all of it rooted deeply in the promises of God and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I mean this literally, so I hope you will come by the church today between 12 and 1.30 in the afternoon, there are instructions in your bulletin for how to do this safely, including staying in your car the entire time. But we ask that you enter off of King Street, drive under the portico where you and I will get to meet one another briefly and you'll receive a plant and then you can exit out Woodrow Street. It's imperfect, but it is a small step towards building a relationship together. Because yes, these are strange times. Yes. These are strange times and houses and fields and vineyards and gardens, they will come forth from this place again. You can count on it. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.